Well, we're nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount in our series on the Gospel of Matthew. We've been preaching through the book of Matthew, and for the last number of weeks, uh, well, toward the end of June, and then again in the beginning of September, preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And we can see in this last part of the Sermon on the Mount, this last passage in in Matthew chapter 7, at the very end of the sermon, how Jesus' listeners responded. It says, The crowds were astonished at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one who had authority. Jesus wasn't like the other teachers who said, Thus says the Lord. But Jesus spoke in the first person, saying, But you have heard it said, But I say to you, and He'd speak in the first person rather than on behalf of the Lord's second person. Jesus also claimed that his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount fulfilled the Old Testament, which must have given his sermon quite a messianic feel to it. So no wonder people were amazed as they heard him teach. And even though the things that Jesus taught hit people square between the eyes, people weren't scared away by him. They weren't repelled. In fact, quite the opposite. People were attracted to Jesus, attracted to His loving manner, attracted to His strong convictions, attracted to His bold promises and His wise warnings. This is quite different from the times we're living in now when saying hard things can be considered intolerant and rude rather than thought-provoking. When so many people equate disagreement with whatever you're saying, disagreement with hate, disagree with the society's status quo, and you'll be hatefully attacked by people who are calling you hateful. Give a sober warning today, especially on places like Facebook, and you'll hear things or read things that I can't say from this pulpit. But Jesus' words did disagree with the status quo of those days. And Jesus did give strong warnings to his listeners, warnings that are as needed as much today as they were 2,000 years ago. So let's look now at how Jesus concluded his sermon, and let's see how relevant it is today. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to be reading in the English Standard Version. It'll appear on the screen behind me as well if you don't have a Bible here. I'll start and read the whole, verse 1 and read the whole chapter. Judge not that, that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, to him it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, 
will give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. The first words we see in Matthew chapter 7 are judge not or do not judge. Why is this suddenly Jesus' topic in his sermon? After all that Jesus has taught, as he approached the end of his sermon, he knows exactly how his listeners could be distracted by how their neighbor or their spouse might be living, or how well their synagogue-goer might be living up to what Jesus has been talking about. He might have even seen a few wives elbowing their husbands, or some husbands elbowing their wives as they were listening. Does that ever happen to you? You're listening to a sermon and you think, oh, I wish so-and-so could be hearing this. (laughs) Or this is exactly what so-and-so needed to hear the other day. A while back, whenever a friend of mine and I were listening to a sermon, I'd occasionally, at a key part in the sermon, look across the room, catch his eye, and point at him and say, Sort of mouth the words, he's talking to you. <laughs> we did it numerous times. The first time we did it, it was quite the laugh because I found out later after the sermon, 
he had been feeling really convicted at that point in the sermon. Maybe I should have been listening a little more carefully myself. But Jesus doesn't want us thinking of others as we listen to him. He wants us to begin by first examining ourselves, looking in the mirror and asking, how are you doing, Ken Peters? How am I doing? Don't be judging others, Jesus says, before you take a look at yourself. You should consider your sins in the areas I'm teaching about as so important that they're like a huge log compared to a little splinter when comparing your sins to your brother's sins. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, despite what people in our day and age would have us believe, Jesus is not saying here that we're to suspend all critical thinking regarding the people we associate with, never daring to address anyone in anyone else's life. How many people have heard of someone using this quote that Jesus said, do not judge, and insist that Jesus wouldn't judge them for whatever they're doing, and nor should anyone else? And if we do, we're accused of being intolerant. This passage is one of the most oft-quoted and misunderstood statements that Jesus made. To begin with, Jesus did not mean turn off your critical faculties in regards to other people, turn a blind eye to other people's faults, never criticize anybody, never discern between truth and error, right and wrong, good and evil, hear no evil, See no evil. Say nothing about evil. Is that what Jesus meant? How could that be what he meant when he just after saying judge not, he goes on to say what you need to do first before then, before you then take the speck out of your brother's eye. He expects you to be taking the speck out of your brother's eye. He expects you to be helping them with their sin. But he tells you what to do first. Jesus also says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs. Sounds like Jesus is making a bit of a judgment there, calling somebody pigs. And then just a few paragraphs later in verse 16, Jesus says, you'll recognize false prophets by their fruit. Do all those teachings sound like Jesus is asking us to suspend our critical faculties? No. The word judge has many shades of meaning. And what Jesus meant here was obviously not a command to never speak the truth in an unrighteous situation. Jesus was not asking us to refrain from making godly assessments based on what we know to be true and right in the eyes of God but to refrain from condemning people, jumping to conclusions, pronouncing judgment in a final sense as if we stand in the place of God over people. That was the way the Pharisees of Jesus' day behaved. But lest we feel too good about ourselves, that has long proven to be a very stubborn trait in the church throughout church history. The spirit of the Pharisees is unloving, hypercritical, fault-finding, finger-pointing. And I'm sorry to have to say, 
those characteristics have cropped up in my life from time to time a little too often. That's why when noticing a fault in someone, I need to remember to look in the mirror and ask, how am I doing? But theologian John Stott helps us to see how this command, judge not, can be seen as a positive. The command to judge not is not a requirement to be blind, but rather a plea to be generous. Jesus does not tell us to suspend our critical powers, which help to distinguish us from animals, but to renounce the presumptuous ambition to be God by setting ourselves up as judges over others. In other words, our job is not to pronounce verdicts, but to help people see a better way, a way that leads to life. I believe that within the church, we each have a brotherly and sisterly responsibility to help people, to help each other, to see the sin that's in our lives that we may be blind to without someone else's help. How many here know that they've got blind spots in their lives? Well, how do you know that? You're blind to them. (laughs) But you know it anyway, don't you? You know intuitively. There's things about myself I don't yet see. We, We feel that. We know that. We need one another's help to see those things. One of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, described our responsibility this way. Correct him, but not as a foe, nor as an adversary exacting a penalty, but as a physician providing medicine. Well, that's that's a healthy way to judge. That wasn't what Jesus meant when he said judge not. Jesus adds a warning in this context. He says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. What does this mean, this idea that we'll be judged if we inappropriately judge others? We'll be judged according to the measure that we judge others. This is meant to sober us. It really is. In the same way we're sobered by that part earlier in this earlier in the sermon when Jesus says, if you do not forgive your brother from the heart, Your heavenly Father will not forgive you. These statements are meant to sober us. By not being forgiving and loving, and by not correcting people gently and humbly, we reveal our own arrogance, which will surely shut us out from receiving God's love and forgiveness. That's why this passage can legitimately be seen as a plea, as Jesus pleading with us for having a generous spirit when carefully and humbly addressing sin in others rather than behaving in a harsh and uncompassionate way. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a wonderful description of the significance of Jesus' reference to the I in this metaphor. It just so happens that Martin Lloyd-Jones is not only a preacher, but a medical doctor. And this is what he had to say about the anatomy of the eye. There is no organ that is more sensitive than the eye. The moment the finger touches it, it closes up. It is so delicate. What you require above everything else in dealing with it is sympathy, patience, calmness, coolness. 
transfer all that into the spiritual realm. You are going to handle a soul. You are going to touch the most sensitive thing in a person. There is only one thing that matters at that point, and that is that you should be humble, sympathetic, and so conscious of your own sin and your own unworthiness that when you find it in another, far from condemning, you are full of sympathy and compassion. You really do want to help in this humble, understanding, sympathetic, generous, charitable state. We shall then be able, as the Scripture puts it, to speak the truth in love to another person and thereby help them. I think that makes it clear that judging is okay. Just not the harsh, uncompassionate judgment that Jesus was warning us about. It helps us to see the difference between harsh judgmentalism, which Jesus was forbidding, and the humble and loving correction that allows us to help someone else grow in Jesus. Paul wrote in Galatians 6, verse 1, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or so that you also may not be tempted. So, we need to be looking at ourselves, examining our own hearts, approaching these situations humbly. How are you going to do it? Let's move on to Jesus' words on prayer in verses 7 to 11. Jesus has just addressed the challenges of properly addressing sin and error when we find it in other people, but we also know it's in our own hearts. What do we do? How do we do that? Jesus begins speaking about prayer. He's immediately moving on to the subject of prayer because he knows how much we need prayer to do this. He says, ask. He says, seek. He says, knock. But hasn't Jesus already spoken extensively on prayer in this sermon? Why is he going back there again? Jesus' choice of topics is not random. The Son of God knows where he's going with this. Jesus knows that for us to live in a world filled with sin, when sin is also in our own hearts, for us to be properly discerning and able to speak the truth in love, we need to be prayerful, asking God for help, knowing that God will answer like the Heavenly Father we know Him to be. Jesus also knows that everything He's been saying throughout this entire sermon would feel totally crushing to anybody wanting to live it consistently. It would feel absolutely impossible, in fact. Perhaps Jesus saw some open-mouthed, shocked, or sobered looks on people's faces as he taught on one impossible standard to live up to after another. How are we going to live like this? So in response, Jesus provides us with the means to make the impossible possible. Ask. Seek. Knock. By asking, seeking, and knocking, everything that Jesus teaches in this sermon becomes possible. It's important to notice that the three verbs used for these three words, ask, seek, knock, are in the present imperative tense which means that they're commands that we're meant to continually follow. The present 
imperative verb is often called to a long-term, ever-present, that's why it's a present tense verb, a long-term, ever-present commitment and calls for an attitude or action to be our continual way of life, a lifestyle. In other words, ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. Don't give up. And because Jesus graciously understands how weak our faith and how weak our persistence can be, he included a threefold promise with this threefold command. He says, for everyone who asks and keeps on asking, receives. For the one who seeks and keeps on seeking, finds. And to the one who knocks and keeps on knocking, it will be opened. This is a promise in triplicate. It's Jesus' way of offering us great reassurance in this matter of prayer. And let's not miss the incredible and encouraging significance of what it means to receive from Almighty God, to find what the living God has for us, to have the very door to Father God opened to us. These are incredible promises. Almighty God is going to give to me. He's going to reveal himself to me. This must have been why John Brodus wrote that one may be a truly industrious man and yet poor in temporal things, but one cannot be a truly praying man and yet poor in spiritual things. That's because when we pray, God answers. Jesus promised us, if you ask, if you seek, if you knock for the help to, you need to live for him, he will answer. Jesus even used the example of how a father answers his own son's requests so as to urge us to be bold in prayer. Let's keep in mind, though, that this is all in context. Jesus is not talking about answering any prayers for anything as long as you pray persistently enough as if prayer is some kind of magic. Oh, Lord, give me that jaguar. Give me that jaguar. It doesn't matter how many times I ask, I'm not getting that jaguar. Well, maybe I will. Because the context here suggests that Jesus is not talking about things like that. Jesus is talking about asking God for help to put into practice what he's been teaching on in this sermon. That's why he's inserted this here. He's already talked about praying for things earlier in the sermon. This is about a response to people who are finding this sermon impossible and needing discernment. And he's saying, ask, seek, knock. I'll help you to live what I'm preaching in this sermon. But I need to confess something that happens to me sometimes. We may be, this prayer, this type of prayer, asking, seeking, and knocking may be all about praying that God will help us live according to the ways in His Word. Live His Word. Make it real in our lives every day. I'm asking you, Lord. But I need to confess, some, there's, I have a certain routine in the mornings, and sometimes the routine goes a little haywire. I get up in the morning as planned. I have a great time 
with the Lord, a great time in the Word, a great time asking, seeking, and knocking. And then I come upstairs from my nice, quiet, peaceful office and promptly get into a fight with my wife. Does that shock some of you? It doesn't happen every day. But it happens sometimes. And whenever that happens, I think, what is the use of asking God to help me to grow in these areas of the fruit? I I just spent time asking, Lord, rehearsing the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, give me love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I come upstairs and get into a fight with my wife. And I think, what a piece of work. God must feel like I'm just wasting his time. Perhaps that's why Martin Luther wrote of this passage, God knows that we are timid and shy, that we feel unworthy and unfit to present our needs to God. We think that God is so great and we are so tiny that we do not dare to pray. That is why Christ wants us to lure us away from such timid thoughts, to remove our doubts, and to have us go ahead confidently and boldly. So let's be bold in our prayers. Let's be bold as we ask for God's kingdom to come in our lives, as we ask for God's will to be done in our lives, because God promises to answer. So that's how. But what? What will you do about it? And Jesus goes on to address that. Looking at the next passage, we then suddenly see the word therefore. Or in some translations, the word so. As if Jesus is now connecting his past thoughts with thoughts he's about to share. Whenever you see the word therefore, you ask, what is it therefore? Why is he saying that? What's the connection? Jesus is connecting his past thoughts with his next thought, which happens to be the golden rule. So, or therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That little Greek word, own, which is typically translated therefore, or so, is referring back to something that Jesus has previously said. But what? There are many opinions on that, but I tend to agree with D.A. Carson's reasons for saying that it's referring back to the entire sermon that Jesus has been teaching. This reference to the law and the prophets feels like an echo to an earlier part of the sermon when when Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. That was at the beginning of the sermon. And here Jesus is now saying, for whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets that I came to fulfill. This golden rule, this command, is a foreshadowing of the great commandment that Jesus would one day speak when he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This golden rule, as we call it, is more or less an early version of what we call the great commandment. And Jesus is saying here that all he's been saying in this sermon about righteous living 
can be summed up in the law and the prophets by this one simple but profound maxim. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. That is the law and the prophets that Jesus said earlier he's come to fulfill. If you want to be welcomed, welcome others. If you want to be cared about, care for others. If you want to be loved, love others. Do unto others the way you would have them do unto you. This simple commandment is the basis for one of Gateway's ten core commitments. Everyone a minister. We're all called to actively and deliberately minister to others. We're called to that as Christians. Jesus doesn't say, don't do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. Jesus puts it as a positive to be acted on. Do to others what you'd want them to do to you. Obedience to this maxim requires action. We can't just sit back and be passively nice. It's an action if we want to practice this golden rule. It just so happens that I'm preaching on this chapter on a day we're having a, a, a small ministry fair, as you see there's a few tables around the room. Annually, we have an annual ministry fair around this time in September for ministries that are looking for people to get involved. We promote various ministries that have plenty of opportunities for involvement and encourage people to ask the Lord about getting involved. Each and every ministry that has a table around this room is aiming to practice the golden rule. Those who volunteer as ushers or at the welcome cart are simply aiming to welcome people the way they would want to be welcomed. Those who volunteer in children's ministry are simply... There we go. Lucy wants you. Those who volunteer in children's ministry are simply aiming to love children the way they would have wanted to be loved as children themselves, right? Right? We want the children to be loved. We would have wanted that too as children. Those who volunteer for EAL and for translation, there we go. Julia wants you. Are They're aiming to care for newcomers to Canada the way they would want to be cared for if they were in a new and unfamiliar culture and language. This is the golden rule. That's why I invite you to consider signing up today to help with one of these ministries if you're not already committed to practicing the golden rule on a Sunday. I specify Sunday in this case because all these ministries are asking for help on Sundays. Most of them have rotations in which you're only on about once a month. One Sunday a month to practice the golden rule. It feels like a reasonable thing for Jesus to ask of someone. If you're not already involved, I encourage you to ask the Lord about getting involved. These tables represent very real and truthfully, very exciting ways to express God's love to each person and each family who comes here on Sundays. And why wouldn't we all want to make that possible? Why wouldn't we all want people to feel welcome when they walk in here? Why wouldn't we all want the children to have adequate care so that they feel loved in children's ministry? Why wouldn't we all want newcomers to Canada to feel really welcome when they come into this building? I think we all do. 
There's also a way to sign up for getting involved at Gateway on Gateway's website. On Gateway's website, if you go to the homepage on Gateway's website, you'll find right underneath the main banner, you'll find a little button that's Panet Ministry Opportunities. You click on that button, Panet Ministry Opportunities, and it'll take you to an index. And that index shows all the spiritual gifts that come up in the spiritual gifts test that you've, many of you have taken. And so if you came out as a certain gift, you can click on that gift that you came out strong in, and you can find out all the ways you can put that gift into practice. You know, the reason we do this is because we know that people who put the gifts God gave them into practice are going to feel satisfied because God made them to put that gift into practice. It's how God wired you. It's what he's gifted you with. And we want you to be able to find your gift on that website. Find where there's an opportunity for you to use it. When I look around at this congregation I see, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, I, because I know so many of you, I see genuinely loving people. Genuinely loving people who I know are practicing the golden rule in many areas of your life. But does anybody feel satisfied that I'm practicing the golden rule enough already? Enough of that golden rule. I only want this much of it. I'm encouraging you to ask the Lord, how can I use it on Sundays? How can I Consider, which one of these tables should I consider going to this morning? Please consider signing up for something as we're going to have a break after this sermon and just before communion to allow you to do that. We'll take a break and then we'll come back and have communion together. Then after speaking of the golden rule, Jesus says some very challenging and hopeful things, both challenging and hopeful, before he concludes his Sermon on the Mount. He speaks of two gates and two ways. A wide gate and an easy way that leads to destruction, or a narrow gate and a hard way that leads to life. He calls it a hard way. I find that statement hard, but I also find it hopeful. I have to confess, I I like things to be easy. How many like things to be easy? You know, I like it when you push the button for the garage door opener and it opens. That's easy. Mine isn't working at the moment. (laughs) Honestly, that's not so easy. But there's other things that make things even harder. And I don't like the idea of choosing the easy... But I don't like the idea that choosing the easy way leads to destruction. Because in many ways, those choices lead to a destruction that is a spiritual destruction, an eternal destruction. But isn't it good to hear that though the narrow gate Jesus speaks of is described as hard, it leads to life. And by life, Jesus means spiritual life. Jesus means an abundant life. Jesus means eternal life with him. What a great hope for those who are choosing not to live for the pleasures of this world, but for the pleasure of God. And lest we label God a killjoy, think again. Living for God means living with His Spirit, His living Holy Spirit in our hearts. And with Him in our hearts, we have love, joy, peace, hope. Is there anyone who wouldn't want to be rich in those things rather than in the things of this world? 
If I had a choice, I'd much rather be rich in love, peace, hope, and joy than in the things of this world. So what's the hard part about the narrow gate? I believe it's the need to die to self, to say no to my demanding self and to say yes to God. Our flesh resists that, but our spirit is eternally rewarded when that's what we choose. So what do you choose this morning? Because I believe that choice to die to self is something we have to do daily, hourly, even in some cases minute by minute, depending on what we're going through. Are we prepared to die to self, to my demanding self, and say yes to God? It just so happens that that's exactly what it takes to live the golden rule, dying to self and thinking of others. But now I want to jump to Jesus' conclusion in his Sermon on the Mount where he urges us to base our lives on his words if we want our house, as a metaphor for our life, to stand. Jesus said that basing our lives on anything else is like building our house, our lives, our houses, on a foundation of sand. And as soon as a storm comes, a crisis or a tragedy or a disappointment, that house comes crashing down. Basing our lives on Jesus' word, which means living according to his words, is like building the house of our lives on a solid rock foundation that will stand through any storm. I lived in the desert of the deserts of northern Sudan many years ago when I was single. I lived in a village that had a wadi running through it. A wadi is a dry riverbed that fills up in the rainy season and that and, and, be, and is very attractive um, because it has very fertile soil. Can we just check there? That there is a wadi in the village I lived in. It looks like a big wide plain, but it's actually a basin. It's a riverbed that kind of goes like this and is very, very light, just stretches through the town, north and south of the town. That is after we had rain. We had a torrential rainstorm. That exact same plain that looked so flat and dry suddenly became a torrent. But because it's so fertile, because of these floods that happen occasionally, people can't resist building next to them, building on the sand. And that's a house that someone built. Oh, let's go back there. That's a house that someone built on the sand. It's not much use to them after the storm came. So... I think that Jesus is warning us that those, the house or our lives that Jesus is talking about can actually look quite similar in good weather. In good weather, everything can look stable and fine in good circumstances. But you can tell a lot about a person and what they base their life on by how their lives look after the storm hits. To make Jesus' words your your foundation, intellectual agreement with Jesus is not enough. Even the devil intellectually agrees with Jesus. Taking Jesus in small doses is not enough. Jesus doesn't just want a little bit of our lives. He wants all of our lives. The truth is, even obedience to Jesus 
is not enough. Don't be fooled into thinking that the main difference between these two men is simply their morality. Jesus has just finished saying in a couple of verses earlier that some people will say to him, Lord, Lord, didn't we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? Wasn't that obedience? And Jesus' response to them was, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Why would he say that to them? I believe he said it to them because what Jesus means by hearing Jesus' words and doing them is a radical commitment to dependence on Jesus to obey his words. Depending on him. Obeying by our own strength and by our own wits and wisdom is not the kind of obedience Jesus wants. Jesus wants the kind of obedience that asks, seeks, and knocks on his door in dependence on him. Jesus, help me to obey you today. Give me the strength to obey you. Give me the wisdom to know what your will is. That's the kind of obedience Jesus is looking for. He doesn't just want our obedience. He wants us to want him. He wants relationship with us. That is the only way you'll be able to obey him. That's the only way you'll be able to handle any storm that comes in your life. And that's why Jesus not only shared his words with us, but also before he left this world, promised to be with us who follow him because he knows how much we need him. He didn't just say, follow me. He said, I'll be with you as you follow me. And he wants us depending on him. True obedience to Jesus isn't even possible unless we're depending on Jesus. So the vital difference between these two men was that one was depending on Jesus and obeying him, and one was not. So our response to Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, should be twofold. Ask yourself these two questions. A, Am I obeying what I hear Jesus saying? And B, am I daily depending on Jesus to do so? The story and his Sermon on the Mount should leave us wanting not to obey, but wanting more of Jesus. If we have more of Jesus, we'll just naturally want to obey. (laughs) It's just, it'll be inevitable if you have more of Jesus. Don't ask Jesus, say, Lord, I want to obey more. Say, Jesus, I want you more. I want more of you so that you can help me obey. If you see disobedience to Jesus in any area of your life today, I invite you to simply ask for more of Jesus in your life. To ask Jesus to go further into your heart so that he can help you obey him in that area. And his presence with you will make you more resilient to all the storms of life that will inevitably come. Because Jesus is with us. Amen? That concludes the Sermon on the Mount.